Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the end of the world or not. I guess it all depends on how you define terms like world and age. You can find inappropriate conversations at Stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio and podcasts. And I'm here to say that I assure you that you'll be able to listen to inappropriate conversations on Stitcher before, during, and after December 21st. My confidence there is so high, in fact, that I'm not going to look at the end of the world from the pop culture Mayan perspective, based on ideas about the Mayan calendar, as if a calendar running out of days or coming to the end of its planned cycle meant that there were never going to be days after the fact. No, I want to look at this time when people really are talking a lot about the end of all things. At the book of Revelations, certain chapters in Matthew's gospel, particularly Matthew 24, and other verses in the Bible that have been used by Christians to talk about the end of the world. In other words, there'll be some revelations in this particular inappropriate conversation. That's one thing that might make it a little bit different. I'm going to do some familiar things. I'm going to talk about the issues of the day. I'm going to talk about perversions of Scripture. I'm going to quote Scripture at length. It seems to be something that I've been doing more often here lately. But you can't really talk about this topic without going to the source material. The other thing that I'm going to do, though, that's very different, is I'm not going to segregate the different drummer segment. To me, to come to an understanding of what's taught in the New Testament, in the book of Revelations in particular, about end times, means that we have to understand who John is. And the fact of the matter, I don't think I can play some drum music right now and go on for five or ten minutes about the answer to that question. In fact, I don't trust nor believe anyone in Christian circles who says they are sure they know the answer to that question. John's a mysterious figure, for one, the figure known in uh, Christian circles as uh, St. John the Divine, or John uh, exiled on the island of Patmos, could be a different person than appears anywhere else in Scripture, anywhere else among the New Testament writers. He could be the same person who wrote the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to the church at large. It may or may not be the same John referred to as the gospel writer, uh, the gospel according to John, and that individual may or may not be the apostle referred to in that gospel as the beloved apostle. It's just not easy to say who John is. But as we'll discuss in this inappropriate conversation, our understanding of who John, the author of the book of Revelations, is, leads to some very different interpretations about what is being taught there. And it's not something that we want to take for granted. So let me begin a little bit with the two main possibilities. I'm going to grant for the sake of argument that the gospel according to John is either written by the apostle, the disciple John, or by his followers in his name for the purpose of representing his view. So just to keep things very simple from a theological perspective, to take this out of uh, religious studies school, and to pull it back down toward the pulpit a little bit, and just say, you know, for the sake of argument, the gospel according to John is the disciple John, son of thunder, beloved of Jesus. 
and that these three letters could be either one of those two, or perhaps someone else writing with the authority of that name, which is ironic, because John's a fairly common name, not only today in American society, but it was also not an uncommon name at the time that the Gospels were written, or at Jesus' time either. This is why you hear identifiers like the sons of Zebedee as ways of distinguishing which John was being referred to. Because although there was only one disciple of Jesus, during his earthly ministry named John, it's ridiculous to assume that there were no other Johns involved in ministry. And in fact, the Acts of the Apostles refers to a person named John Mark as Mark for the sake of keeping multiple Johns separate and distinct. And there are many people, myself included, who are willing to entertain the idea that this particular John Mark who at times accompanied Paul on his apostolic journeys, is the person intended to be the writer of the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark, written by someone, theoretically, named John Mark. So there's lots, there's lots of Johns out there. So I want to ignore the three letters. I'll refer only parenthetically to the Gospel. But I want to talk about the book of Revelations, the Revelations of St. John the Divine, and talk about it from two perspectives. What do we do if that book was written by someone who lived around 95 to 100 AD? I'll get to that idea later, because it's covered better by another writer. So I'm going to quote his, his ideas at some length. But first, I want to start with the argument in favor of it being essentially John the Apostle, who was a disciple of Christ. In other words, the earlier dating. The number one argument in favor of the use of earlier dating is that most people believe that the cataclysmic event that Jesus refers to in his prophecies, the big moment that Jesus predicts both you know, before his followers and in sermons and before the Sanhedrin under trial, is the end of the Jewish age, that Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. And there's something rather odd about the idea that John, a disciple of Christ, who was witness to these testimonies given by Jesus, to his prophecies of the destruction of the temple, would be speaking about the end of the world in a separate letter to seven churches located in far north of Jerusalem, in what's now Turkey, and not refer to Jesus accurately predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, the desolation of the temple, and the diaspora. So to make the argument of John the Disciple, being the same person as John the pastor imprisoned on the island of Patmos, I want to start with a lengthy quote from Scripture. In fact, I want to deal specifically with several passages. One I'll hold until a little bit later when I talk about the alternate view. But the first ones I want to deal with come from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And what I want to deal with is essentially Jesus going through a process of mourning Jerusalem, warning Jerusalem, and then finally scorning Jerusalem. First from Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is Jesus, in Luke 19, warning Jerusalem about what would happen in approximately A.D. 70, when Rome, losing patience 
with Jewish uprisings, sent armies, surrounded the city, and leveled it completely, killing something around 90% of the people who lived there, a slaughter of almost a million people, and dispersing those who did survive to the far corners of the Roman Empire. This act called the Diaspora is how you actually get large clusters of Jewish populations living in places like Poland and elsewhere in Northern Europe. The Diaspora was an intentional move by the Romans to say those who survive this decisive blow are going to be sent far away where they can have no influence over their own native homeland and be no threat to the capital of Rome. The next passage I'd like to quote is Matthew chapter 23. It's a parallel passage to Luke 19. But what I want to do is I want to go from Matthew 23 and just continue reading on. So starting Matthew 23 verse 37 into chapter 24 and actually ending with uh, chapter 24 verse 35. It'll be a long reading. It's a famous reading, actually, known in Christian circles as the Olivet Discourse. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers a chick under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to him and pointed the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which has not been torn down. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then... They will deliver you into tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must free, flee to the mountains. Whoever is on a housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or, There he is, do not believe him. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender, and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's a long extended quote from Jesus, Matthew, chapter 23 and 24. The last section I want to share is Jesus speaking these same words in front of the council on trial before the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you will tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Upon the speaking of these words, which were not in remotely any bit confusing to the high priests, there was tearing of clothes, there was screaming in anger, because these men knew that what Jesus was saying, using the same terminology expressed by Isaiah and by Ezekiel and other prophets in the Old Testament, talking about a judgment of God coming against the ungodly, the unworthy, the defiled, the unbelieving. God promised and delivered in the life of those prophets promises that a third of the scars would be thrown from the sky, that the sun would go out. And basically what God was saying is, I am going to, whether through the power of nature or through the power of empowering an army in an unusual way, cast down enemies as unworthy. Jesus was saying, before this generation passes away, while some of the people standing here, eye to eye with me at this moment, hearing words from my mouth, you will see this judgment. That happened. Jesus was telling the high priest that he, or those among his court, 
would be alive to see Roman armies surrounding the city of Jerusalem, slaughtering 900,000 or more people and leveling the temple. And that those people who were foolish enough, or perhaps in their day, wise enough to hide behind the walls of a fortified city, to hide behind the single most revered structure in that city and most reinforced fortress in that city, where there would have been somewhere in that temple court days, if not weeks and months of supplies to withstand any attack, the one single building that would be the last building to fall if an army like the army of Rome chose to attack the city. What does Jesus tell his followers? What does he tell his remnant that he wanted to survive? That when you see these things occurring, run to the hills, flee to the wilderness, do not go back into the city, do not go back into your house, stay away from Jerusalem. Things happened in that prophecy exactly as Jesus predicted. He used the same kind of flowering language that the Jewish scholars of his time would have understood without having to blink an eye, without having to look up chapter and verse. And the uh, passage in Matthew, spoken in a way that would have been obvious to any of the you know, fledgling Christian believers, but not necessarily obvious to anyone who had not been welcomed into the faith. The kind of cryptic language we call apocalyptic language that you see used throughout the book of Revelations. We'll talk in a little bit, especially with the idea of John being a later figure, why a book like Revelations may have been written in code. But what I want to deal with first is the question of whether or not it makes sense that if Jesus makes this staggering prophecy, and this prophecy comes true within a generation, as he predicted, somewhere between the year 30, 33 AD and 70 AD, events transpiring almost exactly as Jesus said, why would a writer of the book of Revelations coming along two decades or more later not refer to that you know, fulfilled prophecy? Why wouldn't a connection be made between the tribulation of the time referred to in the Olivet Discourse and a separate different tribulation being referred to elsewhere in the Roman Empire? Wouldn't that connection be made to a group of people who are referred to in the book of Revelations as having a good deal of understanding, who are able to, in other words, speak in the code? That's one question I'll get to right away. And a little later, I want to get to this notion of being left behind. Because when Jesus, speaking in the red letters of Matthew's gospel, talks in his own words about what happens when two people are in the field, which one's saved? In this sense, Jesus does not refer to being left behind as a good thing. But he's also not talking about the chosen being removed from the earth. You might make a different argument. You might make the argument that those who are left behind in the wilderness, who were not protected by the city, are in essence the ones who were saved. In other words, there's a valid scriptural interpretation from the mouth of Jesus himself that would say that to be left behind is to be saved, and to be safe in the womb of the temple is to be utterly destroyed. So why does this matter so much? Why is it unlikely that you're going to properly interpret anything related to end times from a Christian perspective, up to and including the book of Revelations, if we don't answer the question of who John is and who wrote the book of Revelations first? Well, here's a perspective from a former different drummer, Hank Hanegraaff, who actually quotes somebody who, in theory, would disagree with him, because the opposing view to the idea I'm about to suggest is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a, you know, 
a movement in Christianity that is very young. It did not exist at the time of the American Revolution, for example, coming around in the early to mid-1800s, which means that from a scriptural perspective, it's a non-existent concept. But he's actually quoting people who agree with his point of view and those who are diametrically opposed to his point of view, that a lot of the things described in the book of Revelations happened, and they happened within the first hundred years of Jesus' death. Let's take a look at it from Hanegraaff's perspective, quoting from a very worthwhile theological text called the Apocalypse Code. Find out what the Bible really says about the end times and why it matters today. Hank Hanegraaff, the version that I'm looking at, I'll begin looking at baby page 154 and going for a, a few pages beyond that. It was published in uh, 2007 by Thomas Nelson Incorporated. Those who hold the view that the book of Revelations was written in A.D. 95 face a more formidable obstacle. Consider one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. Jesus is leaving the temple when his disciples call his attention to its buildings. As they gaze upon its massive stones and magnificent buildings, Jesus utters the unthinkable. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. One generation later, this prophecy no doubt still emblazoned on the tablet of their consciousness, became a vivid and horrifying reality. As noted by Josephus, the temple was doomed August 30th, AD 70, the very day on which the former temple had been destroyed by the king of Babylon. As incredible as Christ's prophecy and its fulfillment one generation later are, it is equally incredible to suppose that the Apostle John would make no mention of it. Norman Geisler, himself a committed dispensationalist, argues the point as follows. Quoting Geisler, Imagine this. You're a devout Jew in the first century. The center of your national, economic, and religious life is Jerusalem, and especially the temple. It has been that way in your nation, your family, and almost every Jew's family for a thousand years, ever since Solomon built the first temple. Most of this newest temple, constructed by King Herod, was completed when you were a child but portions of it are still under construction, and have been since 19 B.C. For your entire life, you have attended services and brought sacrifices there to atone for the sins you've committed against God. Why? Because you and your countrymen consider this temple the earthly dwelling place of the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the very deity whose name is so holy you dare not utter it. As a young man, you begin following a Jew named Jesus, who claims to be the long-awaited Messiah predicted in your scriptures. He performed miracles, teaches profound truths, and scolds and befuddles the priests in charge of the temple. Incredibly, he predicts his own death and resurrection. He also predicts that the temple itself will be destroyed before your generation passes away. Example, Mark 13, verse 2, and verse 30. This is scandalous. Jesus is convicted of blasphemy by your temple priests and is crucified on the eve of the Passover, one of your holiest days. He's buried in a Jewish tomb. But three days later, you and other followers see Jesus alive just as he predicted. You touch him, eat with him, and he continues to perform miracles, the last being his ascension into heaven. Forty years later, your temple is destroyed just as Jesus had predicted, along with the entire city and thousands of your countrymen. 
If you and your fellow followers write accounts of Jesus after the temple and city are destroyed in AD 70, aren't you going to at least mention the unprecedented national, human, economic, and religious tragedy somewhere in your writings? Especially since the risen Jesus had predicted it? Of course. Well, here's the problem. For those who say the New Testament was written after AD 70, there's absolutely no mention of the fulfillment of this predicted tragedy anywhere in the New Testament documents. That means most, if not all, of the documents must have been written prior to 70. Geisler is here making a persuasive argument that the book of Revelations was also written before AD 70, despite how much this hampers the view of his fellow dispensationalists. Picking up with Hanegraaff, as the student of Scripture well knows, New Testament writers were quick to highlight fulfilled prophecy. The phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, permeates the pages of Scripture and demonstrates conclusively that the Bible is divine rather than human in origin. Thus, it is inconceivable that Jesus would make an apocalyptic prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple, and that John would fail to mention that the prophecy was fulfilled one generation later, just as Jesus had predicted it. So, if John, the disciple, was the writer of the book of Revelations, it must have been written, at least the early drafts, before AD 70. And if the book was written by a different John, presumably somebody familiar with the gospel passages, particularly the gospel of Matthew, how could that particular John, coming decades later, not be aware of the connection? I do not buy the argument that if you were somebody who had been reached through the missionary work of Paul or Barnabas, and had become converted to the Christian faith, risen in your theological understanding and your spiritual ways of life, and becoming a pastor or a priest or perhaps a district superintendent of at least seven churches scattered all over what was then called Asia Minor and what is roughly now the area of Turkey, I still don't accept the argument that you would be so far removed in distance from Jerusalem that you would not have heard a story like this. A story like this has survived from Scripture to this very day. It didn't fail to resonate throughout history. So what do we do with a book like Revelations? Those who believe the Revelations was written before the destruction of the temple have an easy path of calling out that all of the flowery language, all of the references to Old Testament prophecy, refer to the events that happened leading up to the destruction of the temple. In other words, Revelations could easily be read as the persecution that happened in Jerusalem before the temple was destroyed. Certainly, if there was a group of Jewish people who were rising up in insurrection against Rome, to such an extent that the emperor would send an army to completely destroy the place, you can bet that that particular type of reactionary Judaism wouldn't look too kindly upon this small you know, rogue sect of, quote, Christians, unquote, either. And remember that even if Christians weren't suffering persecution at the hands of Jews who viewed them as some sort of heretics, they, like the Jews, would certainly be suffering persecution at the hands of the Romans at the time. After all, if an insurrection, like the one described by Josephus in his ancient writings, would be sufficiently strong and powerful to you know, merit that kind of military response, that nuclear response, well, you'd think it would have to have been a response to a great deal of tyranny. It's the kind of rebellion that comes from the kind of persecution described in flowery language, granted. 
throughout the book of Revelations. The other possibility is the one favored by those who believe that the book of Revelation said nothing about the time in which it was written, but was instead written primarily to inspire people who would come decades later, perhaps in the minds of those writers, centuries later, clearly, perhaps even a millennia later. In other words, everything in the book of Revelations refers to things which have not yet occurred. Now, there's a couple of problems with this, and the biggest one is John Nelson Darby. He's a different John. No one, at least so far in Christianity, has confused him with being the John who wrote the book of Revelations. But no John that I can think of in modern times has had as much influence over the interpretation of this book as John Nelson Darby. Darby was born November 18, 1800, and lived to be the age of 82. He was an English and Irish evangelist who is perhaps best known today as forming the movement known as the Plymouth Brethren. There are many things about this particular movement that I'm not necessarily a fan of. I prefer to stay further away from Calvinist leanings, for one. But the group is also known for anti-intellectualism. And perhaps that's an unfair accusation because there's probably a spectrum within the Brethren. But certainly at its core, from Darby's perspective, it started off with a rejection of clergy. The notion that the Holy Spirit is somehow restrained or being withheld or being compromised or even insulted by the thought that some people should be learning and leading a flock of believers. So the, uh, the consequence of that, of course, is that you end up with an anti-intellectual strain where someone who has actually been trained and devoted their life to the study of the scriptures is viewed as you know, no more authoritative or having, you know, being no more worthy of being heard than any other believer. If you've seen the movie Son of Rambo, I believe that the Plymouth Brethren, or at least a modern branch, is being represented there. In some corners, there's a, a futurist view of the end times, but there's a very traditionalist view of current times. That not unlike some parts of uh, American Amish communities, you have people who refuse to use modern technology, that they view modern technology as evil. This is all part of the anti-intellectualism of this movement started by Darby. But nothing that Darby offered the world has been more harmful than dispensationalism. Broadly speaking, you might think of the ideas of Christian dispensationalism as being the left-behind books by Tim LaHaye and other writers. Uh, at its core, quoting Wikipedia, dispensationalism is an evangelical futurist biblical interpretation that foresees a series of dispensations or periods in history in which God relates to human beings in different ways under different biblical covenants. Essentially, this is where you get the notion that there's going to be a pre-tribulational rapture and then, you know, a period of tribulation and, you know, harm and, you know, terror and destruction and persecution and then a second coming. And from the second coming where Christ returns, his rule over the world, it's this notion of cutting up biblical prophecies into chunks. And from my perspective, taking them out of context. When you ask a dispensationalist to explain to you biblically the idea of rapture, the first thing they'll say to you is a valid notion. The notion that you're not going to find the word Trinity in scripture either. And yet it is certainly a uh, acceptable worldview to hold that the new Testament presents a Trinitarian idea of God. But you know, the Trinitarian idea of God can be demonstrated through all the different subject-object relationships where Jesus interacts with the Father, the Father with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sent. You know, you have examples of God interacting 
not just with mankind in multiple ways, but with God in multiple ways. And again, in a subject-object relationship, you'll find no such credible references for rapture. The one that is used most often by modern dispensationalists is 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. I will read those passages to you now. Yes, sorry, another biblical quotation. But I'm going to do so from the perspective of asking even people who are not believers to listen closely. It's Christian canon that Jesus will return, that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. From a you know mainstream theological perspective, Jesus' first coming is something that we're about to celebrate as a world here in just a week or so. It's Christmas. And Jesus' second coming is this future event that all Christians believe the last couple of chapters in the book of Revelations refers to the second coming of Christ. You would have to be somebody who's heretical enough that the use of the term Christianity would be highly suspect to say that even those events have happened in the past. But if you're among the people who believe that the book of Revelations was written by the apostle, John, who was the disciple that Jesus loved, at that point, I think you're going to be talking about most of the book of Revelations being predictions that happened before the destruction of the temple, meaning happened thousands of years ago, and only a couple chapters left are referring to what we would actually call the second coming of Christ. I want to read this passage from Thessalonians, though. Part of chapter 4, beginning with verse 13 and carrying into chapter 5, because I want to suggest to you that at no point is Paul referring to a pre-tribulational rapture where Christ is going to come once and sneak his believers off the planet and then come back again seven years later or three and a half years later or ten years later, whatever, in the quote-unquote real second coming. In other words, when Christ comes again, he's coming once, not twice. Thessalonians from Paul. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who remain alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written for you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day will overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but then let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore encourage one another, and build up one another, just as you also are doing. 1 Thessalonians, parts of chapters 4 and 5. 
it is clear from a plain reading of this passage that Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ, a decisive moment of judgment. And this idea that you hear so often from dispensationalists about a a secret rapture, where Jesus is going to come and his chosen are going to be taken away in a rapture suddenly, surprisingly, unexpectedly, and then everyone's going to be left behind for year after year after year. This is not what the passage in Thessalonians says, even by those who quote it, ostensibly to justify the idea that there's a rapture. There's a couple of theories that support the idea of there being a different John. One is that John, exiled to the island of Patmos, was aware of these prophecies and these prophecies being fulfilled, but chose to write the book in such a way that his name, being the same as the apostle, might be used by those to bolster the case of Jesus's prophecy. In other words, if you write about the destruction of the temple, long after the temple has been destroyed, intentionally withdrawing the fact that the temple was destroyed, it does nothing but support the idea that Jesus's prophecy was right on target and accurate. In other words, it is so easy to accurately predict future events If you do them from a place in the future that's so far future, those events are passed to you. But another notion is that John was occupied in a second wave of Roman persecution that was so serious and so foremost in his mind that he just did not take the time to cite to his believers in these seven churches things which were so obvious that they would have taken them for granted. He was dealing instead with a beast in front of him, and he didn't take the time or perhaps didn't see the value in trying to provide comfort to his flock by talking about the beast that was behind him. Another theory, though, is that this particular pastor, like so many pastors in this day and age, just got confused. It's possible that, like everybody who identifies themselves as a pre-tribulational dispensationalist, is missing key questions, is failing to answer the question, who is John? Not just who is John of Patmos, our different drummer today, but who is he in the Bible? Where was he before Patmos? I hesitate to call him John of Patmos in the same confidence that I would refer to Jesus as being Jesus of Nazareth, because I don't necessarily believe that Patmos was John's hometown. In fact, the scripture strongly suggests otherwise, that it was not just not his hometown, but it was far away from his hometown as a place of exile. So, I guess before I go further, and share a quote from Rob Bell and Don Golden, a book they've written called Jesus Wants to Save Christians Too, I think I probably need to answer the question of whether Christians, true believers, actual disciples of Christ, people who knew Jesus personally, do those people ever get confused about who Jesus really was and what his life and his parables and his prophecies really meant? And to do so, I'm going to quote one final passage in today's episode. I'm going to deal with a passage of Luke known as A Walk to Emmaus. And it deals with two people who, while not one of the 12 disciples, were certainly part of the crowd that followed Jesus, who absolutely considered themselves to be disciples of Christ, maybe in a small d way, maybe in a junior discipleship manner, but nevertheless, unquestionably, disciples. Quoting Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. And behold, two of them, these disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, 
which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached them and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who is unaware of these things which have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, These things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day that these things have happened. But also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, and did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and found it exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Then they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. This passage in Luke 24 is followed by a section called Other Appearances, but I'll stop there because the point I want to make and the point that Rob Bell and Don Golden are going to make in the passage I'm going to share from their book next is that it is not just true that Christians today misunderstand Jesus. It's not just true that they don't understand the law and the prophets. They don't understand prophecy in general. They don't get the relationship between Old Testament prophecy and the book of Revelations. They can hear passages of Jesus speaking in Matthew 24, using that same apocalyptic language, and presume that he must be speaking about some far future event where the universe itself is going to be destroyed. Make no bones about my orthodoxy. I believe that Jesus is going to come again. I believe that the universe we live in is going to be destroyed. I believe that those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord will be living with him in eternity. I further believe that time as we know it is not the paradigm that we pretend that it is, and that those of us who are saved have already been saved, and those of us who are living in eternity are already living in eternity. Some of us have an inkling about it. We call it a knowledge. We call it a faith. Some of us don't. Some of us who are saved don't know they're saved. And some of us who presume we are, perhaps are not. One of the ways you can tell is, do you even know who Jesus 
is? Because that's an easier question than knowing who John is. The final word I'll give on the question of John of Patmos. Who is he? What was he about? Can I say that he's a different drummer without having the first inkling of where he lived or where he was from or when he was born? Well, I'm going to let Rob Bell have the final word. From the book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians by Rob Bell and Don Golden. The Roman Empire that ruled the world in the time of Jesus was masterful in its repeated telling of one version of its story. A phrase the Caesars often used was, peace through victory. They would come to a region they hadn't yet conquered, announce that they were going to make this particular region a part of their empire, and then proceeded to occupy it with their army. A person protesting this arrangement could quickly find themselves on a cross. For those in the lands being conquered by the massive Roman military muscle, it wasn't peace. It was destruction, death, the end of life as they knew it. Peace through victory depended on which side of the sword you were on. There's a theme that occurs over and over in the Bible. God sent Israel messengers again and again, but they did not listen. If the system works for you, it can be quite hard to understand the perspective of the people who have the boot of the system on their neck. If you have the power, it can be hard to understand the voice of those who have no power. If you have the choice, options, and luxuries, it can be hard to fathom the anger of those who don't. If you have always had enough food, it can be hard to understand the shouts of those whose stomachs are grumbling from hunger. Which takes us back to the road to Emmaus. Whatever Jesus taught these disciples from Moses and the prophets, it changed their belief about what had just happened in Jerusalem. They had been walking home as followers of Jesus, possessing an understanding of the scriptures, diametrically opposed to the work of Jesus in the world. Followers of Christ, missing the central message of the Bible? It happened then, and it happens now. And sometimes the reason is empire. A tragic example of what happens when Christians miss the central message of the scriptures is the way in which the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible, is taught and understood in American culture. Revelation is a letter from a pastor named John to his congregation. To understand how significant the letter is, it helps to understand its first century historical backdrop. First, the emperor. The Caesars, who ruled the Roman Empire, saw themselves as gods on earth, sent to bring about peace and prosperity. Throughout the first century, the Caesars had taken their divinity more and more seriously, demanding more and more overt displays of worship and acknowledgement from their subjects. Many of them demanded that their subjects worship them as the Son of God, the Divine One, ruling on the earth with the favor of the gods. One Caesar had a choir that followed him wherever he went, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive honor and glory and power. Second, economics. The Caesars understood that at the heart of the empire is economics. If you want to truly control people, you need to control their money. So, if you went to the market to buy or sell goods, you first needed to give an offering acknowledging Caesar as Lord, and that you were an obedient subject of his kingdom. If you didn't, you couldn't take part in the economy, which meant that you wouldn't make any money, 
and you'd eventually starve. It is believed that a system was developed to identify who had made the offering to Caesar and who hadn't. And this system involves some sort of mark you receive to acknowledge your confession of Caesar as Lord and your ability to take part in the market. Third, peace. The Roman army would march into a new land or region, one they had not yet conquered, and announce that they were taking over. They would demand that the children of the land confess Caesar as Lord. If they refused... They could be killed, often crucified, as a public demonstration of what happens when you defy Caesar. This had a way of bringing people in line with the Roman way. Fourth, exile. The Caesar in power at the time of John's writing understood what a challenge the Church of Jesus was to his rule. These Christians believed that someone else, someone not him, was the true Son of God, and that he alone deserved their worship and acknowledgement of divine status. Caesar believed that the way to get rid of this threat was to send the pastor into exile so that he couldn't lead his people. Revelation is a letter from John, the pastor, to his church during this time of exile. He writes in a subversive literary style called apocalyptic, it uses vast array of symbols and images and stylized language to convey profound truths about how the world works. John refers to a beast, which is his word for the corrupt, destructive system of violence and evil that is pervasive in our world. He writes of a dragon, the one who does the work of the beast on earth. And then he talks about the mark of the beast. We can assume John's audience knew what the mark was, how you bought and sold in the market. The mark was a symbol of your participation in the military economic complex of the Roman Empire. The mark represented an all-encompassing system aligned against people doing the right thing. The mark spoke to all the ways humans misuse power to accumulate and stockpile while others suffer and starve. The mark was anti-kingdom. And John says, don't do it. Don't take the mark. Don't take part in the animating spirit of empire. Resist. Rebel. Protest. Revelation is a bold, courageous, politically subversive attack on corrosive empire and its power to oppress people. The people who read this letter would have been confronted with a fundamental question. Who is Lord? Jesus or Caesar? Whose way is the way? The way of violence or the way of peace? The way of domination or the way of compassion? The way of building towers to the heavens or the way of sharing our bread with our neighbor? The way of greed and economic exploitation or the way of generosity and solidarity? Who is your Lord? Imagine how dangerous it would be if there were Christians who skipped over the first century meaning of John's letter and focused only on whatever it might be saying about future events years and years away, there is always a chance that in missing the point, they may be in the process of participating and supporting and funding the various kinds of systems that the letter warns against participating in, supporting, and funding. That would be tragic. That wouldn't be what Jesus had in mind. That would be anti-Jesus. That would be anti-Christ. 
Were the people in John's church reading his letter for the first time with Roman soldiers right outside their door, thinking, this is going to be really helpful for people 2,000 years from now who don't want to get left behind? It's a letter written to a real group of people, in a real place, at a real time, enduring excruciatingly difficult times. Christians were being killed by the empire because they would not participate. John comforts them, challenges them, warns them, teaches them, inspires them. Don't take the mark of the beast. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Even to myself a little bit here, I've played a bit of a trick. I'd forgotten, having recorded that passage with some background music months and months ago, that it was going to raise a different issue that I don't have time to cover today. But what if, for the sake of argument, we're so obsessed with this futurist notion that didn't even exist in the church 300 years ago, that all the events in Revelation are about some far future time? The John wasn't writing to a group of seven churches, as is so clearly the case when you read the book of Revelations, and that instead, it's all code about things we need to watch for. We need to find out if Obama really is the Antichrist, or maybe it was Bush before him, or maybe it's the next set of political candidates. We're so obsessed with using the newspaper as a theological subtext that we're missing the big picture. If... Jesus came back today in a second coming, and his goal was to overthrow the equivalent of the Roman Empire. If his goal was to take the hypocrites and the liars who have faked allegiance to him and use their status as a superpower to rule the world and to impose judgments against everyone else, to use money as bribes to get other countries to do what they want, and to literally send a nuclear arsenal or the equivalent thereof to anyone who dares stand in their path. If he was going to cast judgment against the empire that he finds here, who is Rome and who are the Christians? If you're an American evangelical with a strong dispensationalist attitude that there's going to be some sort of pre-tribulational rapture and then Jesus is going to come and judge, Let's not kid ourselves. Most of the evangelical church in America today is not going to be part of that rapture. Most of the evangelical church today is part of the empire. When you look at the idea of dominionism, this kingdom now notion that to a certain degree was in play on the margins of the George W. Bush candidacy and presidency, and that has actually been fairly loudly proclaimed by Republicans like Michelle Bachman and her supporters on that end of the religious right. What is the goal? The idea is that somehow, if we 
as Christians, take over the government and install a theocracy, that we will be ushering in the thousand-year reign of Christ in some sort of post-tribulational situation, where a still futurist set of events is going to lead Christ to come back and declare us good, and then use the power of this nation as his throne to smite all the unbelievers. My guess is that something different would happen. My guess is that Jesus, upon his return, would recognize this theocracy as the empire that it truly almost already is, and would choose to unseat the usurpers who dare to use his name in vain. There are serious consequences if we do not know how to read Scripture. Of all the books in Scripture that are the challenging ones to read, the book of Revelations is perhaps top of the list. And if you look over into the Old Testament at books like Joel and Ezekiel and parts of Isaiah, well, those books are awfully difficult to read and interpret as well. It's not that these are easy things to understand correctly. It's just that if you're lazy and do it wrongly, if you ignore 16 to 1700 years of church history and just go with the ideas that were pretty much put forward originally by one lone preacher whose anti-intellectualist strain was so strong that he didn't feel like anybody was allowed to be clergy, well, then you kind of have a problem on your hands, especially if these people begin rewriting their own versions of Scripture or using specific interpretations of an ancient translation like the King James Version to bolster their case. We're not doing a good enough job of asking the right questions. What does Scripture say? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus mean? And if he gave a personal revelation to a pastor named John, exiled by the Roman Empire on an island off the coast of Turkey, who is that John? And what does it mean, if we can't answer these questions well enough, that we can be that confident in who is chosen, who's part of the empire, and who are the outcasts? If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. You'll find me on Twitter at IC underscore Greg, and there's an Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page listed as a cause at Facebook.com. Thanks for listening.